Welcome, everyone, to the Expanding Brain Podcast. Uh, I'm Akshata. And I'm Christian, your uh, permanent guest host extraordinaire. (laughs) Permanent guest host. That really is what you are, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and today we're talking about this really intriguing topic that I found in a Quanta magazine article. It is an article titled, What is an Individual? Biology Seeks Clues in Information Theory, and it's by Jordana Sepulvich. And as always, I will link this article and all of my other sources in either the YouTube description or whatever blog post. So if you look around a bit, you'll be able to find it. As someone who has studied a lot of biology, mayhaps a bit too much biology, uh, I have always, you know, worked under fields that have kind of this implicit assumption that there is something called an individual. And this article kind of throws that into question in a way, because it brings us to the idea that the concept of an individual is not really philosophically strong in biology. So, you know, in in biology, in neuroscience, in whatever kind of field we're talking about, we can think of like an individual organism And it's not really that hard to think of, like an individual mammal or a person or a bird or something. But there are edge cases when it comes to the idea of individuality. I think a prototypical one is like a colony of something, like a colony of ants or a colony of bees. That is a very, you know, standard example of something that could be considered an individual in and of itself, even though it's made up of other individuals in a way. There's also lichens or like other symbiotic entities the one in the the example in the article they bring up is lichens so like a lichen is a symbiotic relationship between a fungi and an algae i'm pretty sure and these things are severely interlinked but also they're separate in a way so that raises questions on like what exactly is an individual when you look at that system and there are also you know like more distributed systems like bacterial networks i think i looked up um biofilms as an example so like you know plaque in your teeth and stuff that is a bacterial biofilm so it is basically a collection of bacteria along with like weird extracellular proteins and structures that kind of support them and you know that is an entity in and of itself despite being made up of bacteria and then i think to really cool examples brought forth in this article and in the scientific study this article is based off of are the human microbiome because you know there's like a statistic somewhere that there are more bacterial cells within the body and on the body than there are human cells and that like throws people off a bit um and you know these bacteria are severely dependent on our body for their home and we are dependent on them to do their jobs to keep us living so what kind of you know relationship with individuality and like what is an individual organism if this organism is also like severely dependent on other types of organisms and then the final example that this article brings up at the beginning are viruses which yes, is such a prototypical example of something that is in biology in a weird middle ground. Like viruses are always like the weird middle ground part of biology. So, you know, with all of this discussion of what an individual is, we do have like a generic sense of that, but there are these like middle ground cases that are hard to define. And I think it was interesting because it brought up the idea that biology is philosophically on shakier ground than other fields like physics or chemistry that have fundamental things like, you know, electromagnetism or, you know, 
the laws of thermodynamics, these like base principles that always apply and you can always go back to, they said that biology doesn't really have that when it comes to this concept. And let me read you uh, a quote from the article from Dr. Maxwell Ramstead at McGill University. He says, so far we have a concept of individual that is very much like the concept of a pile. If there's a pile of sand, you intuitively know this is a pile of sand, but a pile is not a precisely defined thing. It's not like after 13 grains, it moves from a collection to a pile. And so the researchers in this study and this article, they're trying to define what individuality means in a more precise way for this field that's more philosophically sound. And they're hoping to do that with information theory. So my question for you, Christian, is, is this something you've like thought about before? Like, did you, did you think that this was a poorly defined thing? Have you never heard of it before? And like, what were your initial thoughts kind of going into this? Um, yeah, yeah. So I think first, is I don't think me personally, I have thought about the concept of an individual in the biological sense necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. Like obviously I've heard about this sort of dilemma that you brought up um, between uh, when it comes to like lichens between, you know, is a lichen, is it an algae or a fungi or is it both? Is it something, you know, completely separate? Um, I think the, the idea of viruses and whether or not they constitute individuals or even life is also sort of an interesting conundrum. So I've thought about those things before. But, um, you know, coming from my background, I think, you know, this concept of individuality, I think more so in terms of um, social groups, right? Right. So I think one of the unique things about this paper that we're going to talk about and that we'll sort of explain more in depth later is this idea lays that this particular theory of individuality, it's not something that really only applies to biology, the way we, we normally think about biology, you know, just sort of like organisms like you and me, but also can apply to sort of social groups and sort of sociological concepts, right? So in the Quanta article that we that we were looking at, um, the author mentioned that you know this you know information theory of, indiv of individuality, which is what we're discussing, um, can also be applied to things like cities, nations, uh, perhaps even like social groups. And um, I think when you sort of think about how, you know, for example, certain groups might have might have claims to rights, or you know, certain groups might have certain moral claims on certain things, this sort of theory of individuality might be sort of instructive about how we can sort of talk about that in an rigorous way. Um, so that was be sort of like the way that I've sort of approached this problem. It's a little bit different from the sort of biological examples that you've brought up. But um, I think what's unique about this, this particular theory is that it, you know, combines both of these dilemmas into a single theory, which can be sort of generalized into, into different fields. I think that's sort of like the beauty of this theory is, is not only, you know, it's rigor, but also it's generalizability to a variety of different ideas. Yeah, I would agree that it makes it it makes it something really broad in a way that we can apply in multiple fields and cases. And we'll talk about this later on. Some people think that's a bit of a drawback in that it's too broad in a sense. Mm -hmm. But I think it is definitely worth considering in whatever sense we want to consider it in, if it's broad or not, just to kind of I don't know, shake up what we normally think of. And I personally, as you know, like I said before, I've, I have a neuroscience degree. I've uh, worked in labs and stuff, and I've done a little bit of like cognitive neuroscience and stuff. And a lot of this research is like trying to formalize in a way concepts that are just naturally assumed in biology. And I think that's definitely a good thing to do. Even if you can't like fully formalize a definition of individuality, the exercise in trying is revealing in a way. So I think this was a good, mm -hmm. a good 
start if not like a good you know just exercise and trying to do something like that and the article actually goes into some of our problems with intuitive definitions of individuality and it raises a couple of key concerns so one of them specifically in biology is that a lot of biology happens at multiple levels. So first, you know, you think about stuff at the cellular level, and then you can go up a level and think of it and like the tissue level or the organ level, and then you go to the organism, and then you go to like an ecosystem. And so biology happens at multiple levels. And I mean, even like smaller levels, like there's like genetics and like um, individual genes and traits. So biology happens at multiple levels. And this concept of individuality, you know, at the cellular level, a cell is an individual, you know, and at the at like higher levels, you have different definitions of individuality, either it's an organism or it's a specific gene or it's a trait. You have different things that are called like individual entities, but there's nothing inherent about designating something as an individual in this scheme because it's just solely based on what level you're at. And that's one problem they raise is that there's nothing that kind of connects all these rigorously yet. It's just what level are we at? Okay, we call this an individual. And you can find counterexamples in any of these instances. So that's one thing. They want to find something that is more general and goes across all of these bounds. Uh, and another problem they come up with is that you know, intuitively, we usually define individuality in terms of physical, like spatial bounds. So like cells have cell walls where the cell stops and, you know, animals have the bounds of their body. And the way it was described in the scientific article is that the fact that these things have these spatial structural properties might not be what defines them as individuals. That might just be a consequence of the fact that they need to function in biology. So the way I think about it, in like a metaphorical sense, this is an imperfect metaphor, but if we're trying to define what a chair is, right, you could say that a chair is defined as having like X shape, like it has a flat part where you sit and it has a back and it has legs, right? You could define a chair physically. You would miss other types of, you know, things that you could consider chairs that don't exactly look like that, but you could define a chair physically like that. But that's not really, I would argue, a fundamental property of chairs. It's kind of just a result of a chair needs to look like that in order for it to work as a chair, correct? So for me, I would personally define a chair as something upon which we sit. And that feels like a more fundamental definition than just it looks like X. So in terms of like cells and biology, I keep going back to cells because it's such a good, you know, discrete example, like we consider a cell an individual. And if we want to say it's an individual because it's bounded by a membrane, that's a little bit flawed because the cell needs to be bounded by the membrane to function as a cell, to like, you know, have signaling, to have its contents contained and to do what it needs to do biologically. It needs to have a membrane, but that doesn't necessarily, that's not the thing that defines it as an individual entity, I would say. I think that is one of the arguments made in the scientific study is that we are, we don't, we need to look past these like structural properties that are necessary for these things to work and more try and find these like fundamental properties that make them individuals. Right. And if I could just uh, interject for a second. Yes. Um, I think in the Quanta article, don't they also raise this point that um, maybe this reliance on like a, a membrane might also have implications for you know, how we categorize individuals in like the very early parts of Earth's existence. Yes. Right. You know, the sort of like primordial soup. Yeah. Yeah. So this this topic has so many wide reaching applications. And one of the most, I think, fun ones is kind of 
what how we think of life in early earth and you know it it took obviously it took a very long time for something that we would consider life to develop it took a very long time for cells to develop right so like there could be things like proteins or not even proteins just like proto entities in the history of uh life on earth that you know, behave in ways that we could say are individuals or are life in a way, but they don't have membranes. They don't have bounds. They're like severely dependent on environmental conditions. And, you know, were there not like certain, you know, electrochemical conditions in the environment, these entities would not exist and they are severely, you know, distributed. These are what, you know, the earliest types of life on earth would be. And if we define an individual as only something bound by a membrane or even just like bound by some kind of physical entity, we might miss other types of, you know, individuals or interesting forms of life because we're focused on these physical bounds. This is an issue for like early earth life, but also for, you know, life in space. There is no reason that life in space should have the structure or function of life now on earth. So like, I don't know if we find some weird crystalline structure on some planet that like does strange things if it's not like bounded or if it doesn't have a type of individuality that we normally recognize on earth are we going to miss it so that's why this this topic um philosophically is really interesting to me is that it has such wide-reaching implications to other things um you know in the scientific article they mentioned that one of the sort of like prevailing assumptions about individuality is this replicator assumption mm-hmm. But that's that's sort of like one of the sort of uh, one of the like most basic assumptions most biologists today use in order to sort of like as, assume like what is an individual versus what is not an individual. Yeah. So the replicator assumption is something that was brought up in the scientific article that this uh, Quantum magazine article states, and it makes sense to me on an intuitive level. Just if you're normally thinking about what we think of as life is something that replicates itself. That that makes sense to me. But if you define an individual by something that replicates, it doesn't fully make sense because replication presupposes individuality in the sense that if you want to say the thing that is replicating is the individual, that's kind of like a cheap cop out into saying like, well, what is it about this individual that like has it replicating, right? And there are also like other issues of like, um, if we want to go back to the ant colony, like the entire ant colony doesn't replicate, but I feel like it would be kind of it wouldn't be great to like consider it not an individual because it doesn't replicate, right? Could you have individuals that don't replicate? I think the answer is yes, you know? And I think it it wouldn't be great to just say that, you know, replication is the necessary and sufficient condition to be an individual. Right, right. Um, you could even think about this in like a different way where, uh, you know, let's take, let's say you take a hypothetical, you know, sort of post-human God, right? that is somehow not necessarily like immortal, but has an extremely long lifespan. You know, this thing comes into existence, you know, it exists and then it proceeds to not, you know, it dies, or, you know, it just, it ceases to exist, right? You know, this thing doesn't replicate at all, but I mean, would we not consider this, you know, this God or this being, uh, you know, an individual simply because it didn't replicate? Right, exactly. Right, and that's, that's a very speculative and, and abstract example. Well, even like, even if you want to go for like, real examples like there are physical like animals and stuff that don't reproduce like mules and like other hybrid animals they don't reproduce and there are people who don't reproduce right but we still consider them individuals so you know obviously that's a a moral extension of this argument but 
in in the same way, even if we want to think of it within the terms of this discussion, like there are genes that aren't necessarily selected for that don't replicate themselves, but we still consider them individuals in the sense of they are individual genes or they encode for individual traits. And we still treat them as important, even if they don't replicate in our normal sense. Mm -hmm. So even though this, you know, replicator definition is useful in a way, it has problems like, you know, most of the other definitions. So the Quanta article kind of summarizes the main thesis of the scientific article when it talks about how we fix these definitions. And it gives us a new definition of individuality, which is basically that individuals propagate information forward from their past into their future selves. So instead of thinking of individuals as defined in spatial terms, we think of them as defined in temporal terms. We think of them as information being preserved over time. And this is where this information theoretic approach comes in, because you have to, you know, define what we mean by information, right? And this is something we'll get into as we get into this, the scientific article more. But I think this is a very, like, dynamic definition of an individual. You know, it doesn't limit it to spatial terms. And it the way the Quanta article describes it is that it describes the individual as a verb or a process more so than a noun, which is what we usually think of it. Yeah. So I guess my question to you is, do you like this? On first glance, do you like this definition? What did you think about it? I, you know, that's, that's a great question. I, I, I like it quite a bit more than, you know, some of the other theories that we've discussed, right? Right. Like, um, I, think it get, I think it gets rid of a lot of the problems that we've discussed with the replicator assumption. Um, I think it solves in like a pretty intuitive way, this sort of like idea of a spatially bounded individual, you know, you know, enclosed by some membrane against, you know, its outside environment. Um, I'm not like sure if I'm totally sold on the idea that, you know, this sort of like temporal uh, continuum, there like this temporal connection is like what really constitutes an individual. But I do think it's like a better definition than the ones that we, that, you know, than the ones that we've sort of like discussed uh, so far. I, I would agree with you in that it is better than the definitions we had before. Um, I think it solves the issue of trying to define something at different levels, like instead of having like a cellular and an ecological and an evolutionary definition, we have this underarching definition that is at the base of everything. So there's an interesting quote here. Within this theory, individuals can be cells, tissues, organisms, colonies, companies, political institutions, online groups, right. artificial intelligence, or cities, even ideas and theories. Right. What we're trying to do is discover a whole zoo of life forms that extend far beyond what we have conventionally called living. And I tried to think of you know, my own example, and the one that came to mind for me was the Roman Empire um, <laughs> as, a, as an individual. Because like, of course, we talk about it in history. I mean, I don't talk about it because I don't study history, but people in history <laughs> talk about it like an individual entity. Right. But no one in their right mind, I feel like, would try and define it solely by its spatial boundaries, right? So I think it, it's more like a collection of you know, information, culture, history, more so than a physical thing. And I think that was the first example that came to my mind. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great example. Um, but I'm not, I'm not totally sold on the idea that, you know, it would be absurd to, you know, define the Roman Empire mm -hmm. purely by its, like, uh, spatial boundaries. I don't think I would argue that, but I think there are definitely people out there who would argue that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, like, a similar example that you could bring up would also just be, you know, uh, the closest thing we have to the Roman Empire of the modern day, you know, the United States of America. <laughs> um, you know, which is in itself, you know, it has its own history, it has its own idea of itself. 
And, Benedict um, Anderson, is that you? <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, a key inside of this information theory, as I understand it, is that, you know, that information is um, important to how the individual uh, arises, right? So if we take something, you know, at sort of like a, at like a, you know, a very high level, like a nation like the United States, right? There are a lot of debates in our current political moment about, you know, what is the identity of the United States of America, right? Right. And a lot of those debates involve, um, you know, conversations concerning the uh, history of the United States of America and what we choose to sort of ignore when we talk about the United, about the history of the United States of America and, you know, what we choose to emphasize, right? And so these discussions about the history of the United States of America and how they enter into the public consciousness and how they enter into public memory, that influences how the individual that we could call the United States of America self-conceptualizes itself. Right, right. And we'll get into this later as well. Like one of the issues with this theory being so broad is that it doesn't really address very deeply the idea of like the individual maintaining its own individuality. Right. And that is something that people um, critiqued about this theory and is a other it's another angle to look at it. But like we said before, this is a very, you know, it's a very compelling way to look at individuality. And I think it is interesting to look at the scientific article because the quant article obviously great but i think you know you in this podcast we try and expand people's brains so we can we can go into the scientific article a bit uh, get a little bit more particular you know we might not go straight into like the information theory and the and the equations but we'll give a little overview absolutely (laughs) yeah so this scientific study um is by David Krakauer and Jessica Flack. Is Those are the two people credited in the Quanta article for this. And it kind of lays out its own case for this definition of individuality by starting with some base assumptions and motivations and then working their way up to this definition of an individual as information that propagates through time. So we talked about you know the replicator assumption. That is something that they talk about in the introduction to this article. They also talk about other properties that we think of when we think of individuality, one of them being that an individual responds to their environment. That's a pretty key one, especially in biology, is that living systems respond to their environment. Right. And not not just like respond, but respond adaptively. Yes, respond adaptively to their environment. they kind of generalize the replicator assumption into something where it says that an individual can increase in relative frequency by exploiting a source of metabolic energy, as I quote from the article. So, you know, instead of just, you know, one entity replicating, it is whatever the individual is using its environment to increase in relative frequency. So that that's a broadening of the replicator assumption is the way I read it. Um, and then the other property that they talked about is that individuals are characterized by tightly coordinated relationships among its parts, be it chemical, physiological, or computational. And I think, you know, we've done an episode on AI, I think it's interesting to kind of look at this from a biological lens, but also apply it to an artificial intelligence lens. So that is a a good, another touchstone to think of. Like we have this political stuff that we talked about. We have the biology, of course, but we also have a little bit of, you know, artificial intelligence thrown in. And then there was another thing that they talked about. Um, the idea of individuality assumes something that they call a set and a complement. Basically, it assumes there is an individual and a non-individual. There's a, a figure and a background. There's a self and a non-self. And that is 
something intrinsic to the idea of there being an individual, that there is some kind of environment around the individual. Right. I liked how they called it a set and a complement. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, my mathematician brain like that. Um, and, you know, we've talked about this before. There are a few specific examples of that. You know, if you have something... If you have a cell, you have spatially bound reactions. The membrane is kind of the border between the set and the complement. The other really interesting example that they talked about was immunologically, like if you have a pathogen attacking an entity, the immune system of that entity has some kind of, you know, coding to tell what is self and what is non-self. So that is one way to like designate this figure from its environment. And then there's also uh, a temporal aggregate encoding a common past independent from other aggregates. This makes me think of what you were talking about with, you know, America in that there is a shared past there and that, you know, connects America, even if people argue about like what to emphasize in that past. Right. And then the other thing, another example that they gave about, you know, set from complement is the, the idea of a unit of selection, like a certain trait or a certain combination of traits can be selected for over time as other traits kind of disappear or change. And that is also another way to separate the individual trait from the background or the environment. Right, right. And it's important to note that that very last one about selection is largely derived from like, you know, evolutionary theory, right? Right, right, right. So if, if we accepted that particular definition, then we would sort of have to, you know, accept the idea that all individuals or sort of like sets of individuals undergo evolutionary change. Right, right. You know, which may or may not be true for, you know, certain kinds of individuals, right? Like I, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not saying evolution isn't real. I just want to make that extremely clear. <laughs> Comes out on this podcast, Christian's yeah, yeah, anti-evolution. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. No, no, no. I don't, I don't know if I think of it as like saying that it's like saying that individuals require evolution in a way. I think it's just saying, you know, at these different levels that we were talking about earlier, you know, in evolutionary biology, it's not always easy to say what a specific trait is, right? Because do we define it genetically? Do we How do we define a trait, right? And the way you would, I guess, define a trait in this instance, it would be a unit of combined things that have been selected for over time, you know? Right. Even if it is multiple genes or like a network of factors, right? The thing that has been selected for over time is the individual trait, is my assumption by what they mean. It's just another example of designating designating individual from environment. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I talked about this earlier, but it looked at some edge cases like the ant colony. I mentioned this before. It shares one past as a colony. Um, the whole colony, like I said, doesn't replicate, but parts of the colony do replicate the whole colony. You know, there are like, um, what is it? Worker ants or like the queen and like the queen's workers or whatever. I'm thinking about bees because I have more experience with bees than ants, but only part of the colony actively is responsible for the replication of it. Right. And as well, part, you know, there's like this division of labor where parts of the colony help the whole colony respond to changes in the environment. And, you know, it's, a, it's an in between form of individuality from all our previous definitions. It's not you know, the individuality of a single ant. It's a different type of individuality. And then the other thing, like we've talked about a lot, are viruses. And the part, the edge case with viruses that I find philosophically interesting is the fact that, you know, a single virus is just like a piece of DNA or RNA or whatever in a capsid. The virus doesn't really become important or come into being until it infects its host and like hijacks the host to start making copies of itself and do things in the cellular machinery that are harmful to the host. So the virus is 
intrinsically dependent on the host for replication and for function, right? It's not, it doesn't really come into being as something we think of until it has been in the host itself. So how does its individuality distinguish from the host's individuality, you know? And how do we separate that set from complement? You know, is are the host cells infected by the virus still the host cells or are they viral cells? Like that is where this philosophical question of a virus's individuality really, you know, captures my brain. So with all these like motivating examples and counterexamples and properties we want to think of, they come up with this theoretical framework using information theory. You know, it, it was it was interesting to me because like all of this talk about um, set versus complement, uh, figure versus ground is a lot like this idea of like pattern recognition and figure ground separation in artificial intelligence, both in artificial intelligence and the brain. There's like a huge devoted portion of neuroscience where they talk about like how the brain distinguishes foreground objects from the background. And that has been a question in AI cognitive science for a while now. Uh, and when we think about individuality in biology, they argue that instead of assuming there is such a thing as an individual that we study, they argue that we could consider constructing an algorithm to actively do this process to establish the difference between uh, individual and environment or figure and ground. It is hard to find that algorithm. It maybe will be impossible, but it is important to not assume that this differentiation between figure and ground just like intrinsically exists. Despite the fact that they don't have a clear algorithm, they do want to think of a framework for thinking about individuality. And in this framework, they think of three axioms of individuality that are important to consider and kind of expand the scope beyond what we normally think of. So the first one is that individuality can be continuous. It is not like an all or nothing thing where something is either an individual or not. And like things can be more individual or individual in different aspects than other things. I think this is also something that is related to like the concept of living things you know for so long something was either living or non-living and then like as we discuss viruses and other like edge cases more you know most of science is under the general consensus that the idea of what is a living thing is less of a strict binary than we thought in the past i, I would just like to emphasize that you know like this particular axiom out of the three that we're going to discuss it's probably like the most innovative and most contentious of the axioms, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, and when, you know, lay people think about, you know, individuality, it's like either I'm an individual or I'm not an individual, right? Right. Like we do, like in sort of like our lay concepts, we don't think of this continuum of individuality and uh, non-individuality. So um, I would just like to emphasize that this is like a really, um, uh, paradigm shifting is a bit of an over-exaggeration, but it's certainly like mm -hmm. an extremely new way of thinking about individuality that clashes pretty hard with uh, sort of like older ways of considering individuality, you know, both within biology and, you know, in other related disciplines. Yeah. And I think what this reminds me of is when people were trying to study consciousness more, like there's this whole debate over whether is something conscious or is something not conscious and that being a binary fact. But then as people study it more and kind of try and get it on more philosophically sturdy ground, you kind of start to find these like weird edge cases of consciousness, like dreaming or when you're on psychedelic drugs or something like that, or when you're having a psychotic breakdown or something. Those are, you know, this is like something that I studied in, in my neuroscience background, but like consciousness is a very ill-defined thing normally, of course, right? right? And we talked about that in our first episode about uh, the octopus and how the consciousness could have evolved. And 
this is what that reminds me of is taking something that is binary, turning it into more of a continuum. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it always makes me think, you know, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, especially now in the 21st century, we're always knocking down these binaries. It always makes me wonder, you know, like... God willing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wonder, you know, the fact that, you know, so much of our sort of scientific thinking is in binaries. I wonder how much of that is a product of, you know, sort of like Victorian era thinking in science and rationality. Was the Victorian era, like, known for an obsession with binary thinking? This is well, so new to um, me. I, well, I, I was thinking about when I brought up the Victorian era. And I guess by extension, sort of just like, you know, the earlier sort of what we, what we call like the Enlightenment. I was thinking about it more in sort of like a gender sense. So, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of our sort of like gender binaries that we think about today are products of sort of like this, you know, period between the, you know, Enlightenment and like the Victorian era. And I was just wondering that did some of that other sort of like binary thinking sort of like extend to like other areas of science? Because we can sort of see that in things like such as like race, mm-hmm. where, you know, the arrival in the Enlightenment led to this obsession over not necessarily creating a binary of race, right? It's not like it's just like black and white, but definitely creating a rigid taxonomy uh, of races that are uh, biological, right? So that's a product of right. sort of like Enlightenment era thinking, Enlightenment era rationality, you know, this desire to... Uh, categorize things in order to be a little bit more rigid in our thinking. Right. That is pretty thought-provoking. Historical kind of foundations of these kind of ideas. Yeah. And, you know, and not to say that, you know, obviously, like, obviously binary thinking did not, you know, suddenly arise yes. in the Enlightenment or in the Victorian era. Like, like <laughs> Queen Victoria aware, like, invented right? binary thinking. <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, just to go back to an extremely ancient example, Manichaeism, you know, this binary between good and evil. That's something that is extremely ancient, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's just sort of interesting, you know, maybe these sort of like rigid uh, sort of like categorical models perhaps became more popular because of the sort of like way of thinking that occurred during the Enlightenment. And not to say that, you know, that this sort of categorical thinking is a bad thing, but, you know, it is something that, you know, uh, sort of like arrived historically. Right, right, right. Yeah, I would agree that it is is something cool to consider. And how do I transition from that into this next axiom? Yeah, but, so anyway, uh, you want to talk about the second axiom of the, <laughs> the second axiom? Yeah. yeah, yeah, transitioning back. Yeah, um, the second axiom that they mentioned in this article, along with individuality theoretically being continuous, it can also emerge at any level of organization. So this is something that you know I talked about before. You know, instead of defining it as something specific to a level of whatever biological study it is something that can emerge at any level. So I think the I think the example given in the scientific study is they talk about how we consider an organism an individual if it has like germ cells or if it has like a reproductive system that allows it to replicate. This is going back to the replicator assumption, but then, you know, when we get to those individual cells, the individual cells need to have their own definition of individuality in a way. So instead of trying to define it at each individual level, individuality can be broadly applied to multiple levels. Uh, What this does is it basically lets us look at distributed systems and uh, systems made up of multiple what we would call organisms, multiple organisms as more of an individual rather than trying to like define things in one level and then define it differently in another level. Right. And and uh, this particular axiom is something that um, I would understand also applies to sort of like the sort of like earlier theories of individual of individuality that we also discussed. Right. This idea that um, individuality is something that exists at multiple levels and that um, is something that 
ideally should be, you know, um, thought about at like different levels. Right. Right. Am I, do you think I'm correct in that assumption? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think not only can it be thought of at different levels, but I think this article is really pushing for something even between those levels that connects mm. those definitions. Cause like calling a salad individual and then, you know, if we step up one level, like how do we define individual tissues? Right. And then step up another, another level, individual organs. Like you have to have different definitions in all of those senses, but this article is pushing for something fundamental that unites those. Exactly. Right. And then the third thing, which I find cool is that individuals can be nested. You can have individuals within other individuals. And I think this is like the, I feel like this is the least difficult one to argue for because it's just, we're defining individuality as something that can be nested. And I mm -hmm. think that really allows us to open a bunch of doors, you know, in terms of having individual ants residing within individual ant colonies, you know, um, you know, and also if you combine this with our first uh, axiom, you can have uh, individuals within other individuals, but they all have different varying levels of individuality, right? right? And I think that makes the landscape of what we call an individual more complicated and uh, interesting to consider. Right. It makes it a little bit more supple. Yeah, I would agree that um, I actually felt like this uh, last axiom that you brought up is sort of like one of the ones that is like very obvious and like very easy to, right, right. Uh, you know, apply to like, you know, like different factors of life so obviously um you know to use your early example right like i'm an individual and then i sort of have like individual you know cells within me you know those cells have sort of like individual constituent parts um you know things of that nature but if you uh going in the other direction you could also again you know think about social groups right or just social entities in general so um, in America, at least, uh, corporations are considered individuals, right? Yes, they are. Right, like I could, I could, <laughs> I could go, I could go ahead and sue a corporation and bring it before court, and it would be as if I were suing you, or you know, suing somebody else, um, some other human being. But obviously, at the same time, like the corporation isn't a literal human being, right? Even though we treat it as an individual, a, cor a corporation is a, a corporate entity composed of multiple different human beings each of whom is an individual, right? So in, in that very, very basic sense, um, you know, you have an individual company and there are a bunch of individual human beings being nested within that company. You know, same thing, same principle applies, you know, nations, you know, uh, large social groups, you know, things of that nature. Yeah. So yeah, I, I felt like this particular, this axiom in particular, I, I feel like it's very intuitive and very important for when we think about, you know, the nature of individuality, not just in biology, but also, you know, in other areas. Right, and like, something that kind of is controversial in a way, but like cuts cuts close to a lot of people's, you know, thoughts and morals is like, you know, there's been this millennia long debate over like fetuses and the individuality of fetuses. And this third axiom that says individuals can be nested within other individuals, that's what first came to mind when I read that one is like, so we are going to try and define individuality in this nested way. And it directly has implications to something, you know, that is at the heart of a lot of people's morality, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's a real thorny issue there, Akshata. I don't know. You've I know. Sort of well, it I mean, Pandora's it's box. not controversial to point out that that is an issue, of yeah, course, absolutely. right? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Though I, I would just say that, you know, at issue uh, with abortion is not only, you know, the concept of what is an individual and what isn't an individual, even though it, it certainly is, right? It certainly is. Mm -hmm. um, but also the issue of, of life. Right. You know, um, right? Do we consider a fetus to be alive? Do we consider a fetus to be a... Uh, 
um, a moral patient, as some would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a moral patient being an entity that sort of can can have like you know morally relevant actions performed on it, right? As you know, a, a moral patient being opposed to a moral agent like you and me, whereas like we can perform ethical actions or unethical actions, right? Right. And the question of whether you know the individuality of a fetus, how that interplays with the individuality of the parent it is residing within, and how yeah, yeah. you know how those interactions come to. I mean, I didn't mean to take this in a in a controversial direction. No, no, I, no, please do, please do. <laughs> I, I all I mean to do is to note that you know these questions are directly applicable to things yeah. in you know life and politics. It absolutely, you know, yeah. It is, it's not just like errant speculation about philosophy. It is something mm-hmm. that is, you know, I mean, some of it is errant speculation about philosophy, but some of it is important. <laughs> exactly. No. You know, sometimes errant speculation on philosophy, you know, can uh, can bear fruit, you know, centuries or, or decades later. So Exactly. It's like pure mathematics. Sometimes it like exactly. doesn't do anything in the moment, but you look back on it and you're like, huh, this is important. Speaking of things that, you know, might not have done anything in the moment, but looking back on it are important. Let's talk about information theory. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm sure information theory was important as it was being developed. You know, there's this whole section of this scientific study that formalizes these axioms and these definitions using, you know, equations and information theory and everything like that. But I would like to try and do my best to give a little bit of an overview of it. Definitely not my field. Um, And I would suggest anyone who is well-versed in these topics to read the study because the authors there are probably going to define it in much clearer terms than I will. So I highly recommend reading it for yourself if you would like to. Yeah, it's it's very short. It's only 15 pages. So Right, right, right. And the section with the um, mathematics and information theory is even shorter. So exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think so in the, the vaguest sense, the way I kind of look at it from like a 30,000 foot point of view is that information can really be anything if you think of it as a string of data. So this is kind of Claude Shannon's interpretation of information, really. If you think of a string of data, if you want to think about it in binary or like whatever, it has a certain number of possibilities of different sequences that you could have. Um, This is like the term microstates. There are different states this string can take, and it has different sequences. It can be any combination of terms to create this data. This is also where the concept of entropy comes in. You know, in a classical sense, we think of entropy as the disorder in a system, right? But in the information theoretic sense, entropy is like how many different microstates you can have. So a string that is only two digits long has less entropy than a string that is a thousand digits long because there are fewer states that string can take. So that that's kind of like the most basic way to think of information is like a string of digits. And you can tell that this this whole field is deeply immersed in computer science um, because that's, I think, where most of the people who developed it came from, I think. Yeah, yeah. Claude Shannon was certainly like an, uh, an early pioneer, I would say. Right, right, right. So it, with regards to information theory specifically, say you have your information, if you want to think of it as a string, go ahead, and you're transmitting it across some communication channel and there's some noise happening in the system as well. And let me read you a quote from this study. The study of the maximum number of states that can be transmitted 
transmitted from one point to another across a channel in the face of noise is called information theory. So when we talk about information theory, it is about transmitting information across a channel in the midst of noise and preserving that information. You know, it makes sense in a computer sense, but it also makes sense, you know, I would say like biologically, like if you're trying to transmit information from a parent to an offspring genetically, there is like mutation and other factors that could introduce noise into the system. And that is another way to think of information theory in a biological sense. And you can also think of it, you know, if you want to think of it in terms of entropy, like increasing rates of mutation in a way is increasing the number of states that are possible. And that would be increasing entropy in a way. And that also meshes with our understanding of entropy as disorder. So that's kind of a bit of an overview of the very basics of information theory. The reason it applies to this situation and the reason I find it eye-opening is that usually in information theory, you have a signaler and a receiver and you have a communication channel. You have something that is sending the information, something that is receiving the information, and a channel between the two where the information is traveling. And the thing in this article that they talked about is you could have your signaler and receiver be the same the same entity and the communication channel just be time. So you're transmitting information across a temporal bound. And so the way that they're defining an individual in an information theoretical sense is that you look at an aggregate of information, right? And you see if it's the same aggregate at time t and time t plus one. And if you've maximized that information, if that information is the same over time, you have an individual. That is what individuality is. That sounds right to me. I was actually going to ask you, like, okay, you know, we have the signal, we have the signal, we have a receiver. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about, you know, this individual, like, is the channel time? I, I mean, I was literally going to ask, like, I had written down, like, oh, channel, is it time? Mm-hmm. And then that would mean, like, the signal and receiver is like a past self versus a future self. Right. That's the way I'm understanding it. Um, is that say you have just like a landscape of information, right? In whatever like data you data sense you have and you look at it at time zero and time one if you have like a certain chunk of that information preserved despite all of the noise you could call that an individual and you could call that a hallmark of individuality and and i think it says that um something that is said in the article is that if the information transmitted forward in time from time t to time t plus one is close to maximal, even with noise, we say that is evidence of individuality. So that's how I, I read that, is that the signaler and the receiver are the same entity, and you have maximal information transmitter, transmittance between the two. Right. Oh, and um, you can see how this ties directly into the first axiom that uh, you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. where individuality exists on a continuum. If we're defining um, individuality in this way, where there's sort of like this temporal um, bound and, you know, information exchange between a past self and a future self, we sort of like define the level of individuality through entropy. We can therefore say that something that has less information infantry is less of an individual, something that has more um, informational infantry informational entropy is more of an individual. Do you think like that's something that the authors would also agree with? So I think the way I'm understanding you is that if you have more information preserved, right. it is more of an individual than if you have, you know, some of it lost to noise. Is that what kind of what you're saying? Uh, yes, basically. Yeah, I think I think I would agree with that. I think another thing that complicates that assumption is this set complement distinction, right? Is like finding what is the entity that is preserving the information, right? And what happens is this information is both dependent 
on the environment and the individual. So that that's a bit complicated, but I can give an example. So the state of a cell is dependent on both the inner workings of the cell and whatever external environmental factors are happening in the cell, right? Right. And you know, the state of an AI, if we want to take it that way, is dependent on its own like internal circuitry and training and whatever, but also whatever data or whatever question it's being asked. So the issue is if we're looking at individuality as how much information is preserved over time and less information being less of an individual, you have things that we think of as individuals, like say the one I'm thinking about right now is a biofilm, is like a, a, a interlinked network of bacteria. Those are you know, those are very dynamic changing entities that, you know, might not have the same information preserved over time because they are highly dependent on their environment. And, you know, early life on Earth as well, also highly dependent on its environment. So instead of having individuality as kind of like a 0%, 100%, something I like about this article is that it talks about different like lenses with which to look at individuality in the sense that you have different types of individuality that we'll get into depending on how uh, dependent the individual in question is on its environment and its own internal states. So you, it, I, I hesitate to say that some things have more individuality than others. It's just some things are differently dependent on their environment. It's like differential individuality rather than, you know, more or less is where I'm coming at it from. Okay. Okay. And so um, this sort of like relationship between, you know, the set member to the set complement, right? You know, between an individual uh, however much of an individual it is and its environment, that also, that sort of leads us into sort of like the typology that the authors propose for individuals, right? Like these three types of individuals. Yeah, yeah. So um, the way they did this in the article is that they came up with a whole bunch of equations that describe how the information of an individual is dependent on its own information in the past and information from the environment. So it has a bunch of terms in these equations that, you know, one of the terms is for environmental influence. One of it is for self-influence. One of it is for like other, other like adaptive influence, stuff like that. There are all these complicated terms in the equation. And something I like about this, the way they kind of define these three types of individuality is by saying, if we maximize one of these terms in the equation, what type of individuality do we get? I think that's a really smart way to look at this in terms of just like a dynamical modeling perspective, because if you have all these, you know, variables and all these equations and stuff, you can try and find systems that achieve some type of steady state and see what variables are maximized and see if that's like a different type of individuality. And the way I read these, these three lenses, I don't read these as the only three types of individuality. I read these as three examples of like variables you could maximize and get types of individuality. So we'll go through them right here. They say the strongest form of individuality in a way is organismal individuality. It is what we would normally think of as an individual organism. So it's strongly influenced by its self-information in past states. Like you know, if it's windy, we don't change our form. Like that doesn't happen <laughs> to like most animals, right? So most of the information in the next state is determined by self-information in the previous state, not necessarily environmental information. This doesn't mean it's completely unaffected by the environment. It's just predominantly affected by self-information. And I think, you know, as a as a starting point, it's good. It It's good to know our normal intuitive notions of what an individual is does fit into this framework. 
another kind of lens, another form of individuality is something called colonial individuality, a term I don't love, but I understand. Uh, <laughs> it is these individuals are like have like an interwoven relationship between self and the environment. And there's like certain terms in the equation you can maximize to get this. I don't think I have the knowledge to go into it deeply, but it's more of an intercomplicated relationship than the first one. So an ant colony, a biofilm, all of these examples that I've been talking about fall into this camp. And I think the term that they use in the paper is that these individuals are scaffolded by the environment. So they're highly dependent on environmental conditions. Highly dependent, but not entirely dependent. Highly dependent, but not entirely. The entirely dependent ones kind of come in our next type of individuality, which is environmental individuality. So they are even more dependent on their environment. And I think the key thing is that if you remove the scaffolding, the entire entity falls apart, is what this uh, article said. So for example, a hurricane or a tornado, which dissipates under the wrong temperature and moisture. And they also gave the example that the first life on earth was probably like this. We talked about this at the top. These life forms were probably highly distributed, severely dependent on conditions in the environment and would not be around were it not for whatever spark that caused them, right? And the thing I like about this definition is that there was like a throwaway line in the article that mentioned how this type of individuality is kind of how you can have the state of an environment reflected in an individual. So it it mentioned embodied cognition. And I saw that and I was like, oh, I was like, what? <laughs> Welcome back, embodied cognition. But it, it's it's something really cool to think about is that you can have an individual that is solely just like so dependent on the environment that it is literally a reflection of the environment at the time. And I think these are the types of individuals that the critiques of this article don't like. <laughs> I would say mm-hmm. that the people who critique this line of thinking aren't fans of this type of individuality, but I find it interesting to at least consider. Right, right, right. Like they might object to the idea that a tornado could be considered an individual of some type, especially like biologists. Yeah, yeah, especially biologists. My question to you is, did you think of any new types of individuals that arise from any of these definitions? I think I, I thought of a few examples that maybe fit into some of these camps. We talked about a little of them. Political movements, I feel like are... If I were to pick something, I would make a political movement an environmental individual. Maybe I'm wrong, but like it is so like a political movement is so highly dependent on the other political movements in the landscape. Right. And what is going on with, you know, the governments and stuff like that. I I feel like and it's so like distributed and ill-defined as like like I'm thinking of leftism, of course, but just like any political movement is so dependent on its context that for me, if you want to call it an individual, it would be an environmental individual. Yeah, no, I, um, I absolutely like agree with like your general line of thinking. Most examples that I can sort of like think of off the top of my head are not strictly biological, but more sociological or political, like, right. you know, like a political movement. Mm-hmm. It could also extend to things like, uh, like, say, race, right? You know, right. you know that, you know, race is not a biological construct, it's a social construct. And so um, the boundary of, you know, what could be considered, uh, you know, say, like, Black in, you know, the United States of America is dependent upon, you know, like a lot of different things. Like, the Black in the United States means something radically different from, you know, Black in, say, an African country or Black in or in Mexico or especially, like, in something like Brazil mm-hmm. or in, in South Africa. Um, and so these are all examples of the, of a race or a racial group, you know, which we could consider, you know, 
perhaps an environmental uh, an environmental individual to some degree. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the way like the way that you know the, that particular group is structured is dependent on the environment. As well as just sort of like the history of a particular country, which you know, uh, I'm not sure if uh, was how, how much it's, it's dependent on like another individual, right? Mm-hmm. So like, let's say we take the individual of a race of a racial group. Let's say we're talking about blacks in South Africa. You know, the contours of that group, the scope of that particular individual, is determined by the sort of like information encoded in the individual that is South Africa, right? Right. And that information being the sort of like history of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean. You know, it, it sounds like a bit of a reach, but like that, I feel like you could directly apply that to like the biology of systems that we're talking about right now. Like the yeah. the information of a cell as an individual is so highly dependent on the information of the individual and its genetic code and stuff like yeah. that. Like it is severely interlinked in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's just like another way of encapsulating, you know, these uh, three axioms that we were talking about before, right? We're like, we're like in, in terms of the, you know, uh cell human example or even you know the the race country example you know individuality is existing on different levels it's nested obviously and it also exists like on some sort of continuum yeah i i think that's that's really true that's a good example to think about um another example i had are like individual like cells and gliders and conway's game of life if anyone has played that or knows that I, i was trying to think of any algorithmic examples right yeah and you know those things you know they are dependent on their past selves. They are dependent on the environment. If you have like a glider, like it is something that is an individual in a way, but it is purely algorithmically generated. So I thought that was an interesting example. And then a couple of examples I thought of that like didn't neatly fit into these boxes, but I thought would be, you know, could you could consider them entities. Um, mm-hmm. I think like a brand, right? Like if you think of a brand and it's like it's brand identity that I feel like maybe could be like colonial in nature, like a colonial individual. It's dependent on a bunch of different people, a bunch of different factors. Um, I also had the thought that like (laughs) Apple as a company is more of an individual than like a small startup because Apple is so like huge and like the state of Apple in the future is way more dependent on Apple in the past than anything else in the environment. Like it is not super affected by a lot of environmental factors. I feel like it is well, because it is such a big and like established company, it is, you know, very self self-dependent in a way uh yeah yeah you know as as long as uh you know governments don't start you know enforcing certain antitrust uh <laughs> yeah exactly uh, statutes and whatnot. Yes. exactly I, I think generally speaking yeah there is this sort of like self-repelling nature inherent to like especially large tech companies like apple or facebook or uh especially google mm-hmm, mm-hmm. google i think is is an excellent example of what you're talking about where you know the company itself is sort of repelling and it can it can weather shock extremely well right Yeah. And then the other example I had, just because I was using it when I was writing this, was the Spotify algorithm, which, you know, or any algorithm in instance, because, you know, a Spotify algorithm specifically is like dependent on what you input into it. But it also has its own like interesting code that like is affected by, you know, its own previous states. So like, obviously, these are not biological individuals, but I think if you're maximize, if you're looking at like how to tweak these parameters, like how dependent on is it on itself? How dependent is it on the environment? How dependent is it on like boundaries or structure? If you're like tweaking these variables, you can find examples that fit, you know, any of these variables. I feel like I feel like that's why this is such a a broad concept, you know? 
we talked about how like broad this concept is and that like naturally transitions over into the problems with these ideas of individuality. I think Maxwell Ramstead, who is a researcher I quoted earlier, is one of the people who is kind of critiquing this idea. And I think one of the main critiques is that this definition doesn't really distinguish between living systems and non-living systems, living individuals versus non-living individuals, based on like purely information flow. It's just a, it's very broad. Like, I don't think they like the idea, like you said, that like hurricanes can be considered individuals similarly to how, you know, a biofilm can be. I would say my counter argument to that is that if the definition of individual has been so poorly defined in the past, it's worth at least expanding it, even if we overcorrect, just as an exercise to see if we can find some kind of middle ground. But that doesn't like invalidate these critiques. I think it's good to like, for biologists specifically, that's where this lens is coming from. Like, it's important for biologists to know what a living and non-living system is. It's a valid critique, but I feel like it's not, you know, the worst critique, right? No, I think it's I think it's very relevant, especially when it comes to, you know, because this is in essence a biological theory. So, mm-hmm. you know, theory should have, you know, some relevance to how biologists actually like consider, uh, you know, how biologists actually go ahead and do their work. Even though, you know, as we've been discussing, we've been discussing things sort of like outside of biology, but if biologists want to use this theory, then those sort of critiques are important to consider. Yeah. And I think also like a critique of this critique is the fact that like, In order to say that, oh, this theory doesn't distinguish between living and non-living things, you have to have a working definition of living versus non-living, which is also contentious, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is its own philosophical problem in biology in and of itself. What is living versus what is non-living? So, you know, as we flesh out the contours of both of these debates, it will be interesting to see how they link into each other in terms of like living versus non-living, individual versus non-individual. Maybe maybe you need like a four-sided political compass where you have living, non-living on one axis and individual, non-individual on another axis. You know? so true. Well, well, you know, it'd be uh, as long as we make sure it's a continuum. You know? We can't have strict borders. Exactly. Exactly. I think also another problem that I might have mentioned earlier is that most things we think of as individuals have access to the information about themselves and then use that to maintain their own individuality separate from the environment. So like an ant colony will maintain itself as a colony. You know, a, a neural network will maintain itself as a neural network. But a hurricane does not necessarily have access to its own like temperature information and maintain itself as an entity, right? Right. So that, you know, that's a question there. Like, does that make a hurricane less of an individual? Does it make it just like a different form of individual? Does it make it not an individual? That is like, the critique seems to be like, is a preservation of the individual as separate from the environment a primary characteristic needed for individuality? That's another, I think that's a more valid critique than the first one. I mean, both are valid, but I think that's a more interesting one to consider. Right. Especially when you're sort of thinking about in terms of these um, sort of uh, super social, I'm not sure super social is the right word, but you know, like these larger social uh, groups that we can, that we, we've been talking about as individuals yeah. and sort of like how that critique ties in with that. Um I would say, like, by that critique, like, a lot of, you know, the sort of groups that we're talking about, like, corporations or racial groups or nations, I, I feel like most of those would, like, pass that critique. Especially corporations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially when you compare them to something like, say, a tornado or hurricane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, it's just another thing of, like, looking at the variables and seeing what you're maximizing for. I think, I don't know, maybe this is one 
weak point of this theory is that if you don't like something, you could just say it's a different type of individuality, right? And theories that like try and explain everything sometimes fall into this issue in that like if you try and provide a counterexample, you're like, oh no, but that fits if we change if we change the variables. Obviously, I think the researchers who made this theory have thought about like the critiques and have done this in a very thorough way. But in a general sense, the idea of expanding the concept of individuality, there we can expand that co- definition, but you know, there it would be useful to have some bounds on that definition somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that reminds me of I believe there is a physicist, David Deutsch, right? And he and David Deutsch, uh, he has this sort of uh, criterion for, you know, what is like a good explanation of something, right? So like this particular theory, this information theory of the of the individual, right? Right. It's it's mm-hmm. seeking to explain what an individual is. And I'm just wondering in light of the points that you brought up where it's like, oh, you know, this sort of seems this particular theory of the individual seems really, really expansive. Like I'm I'm just wondering, um, you know, how does this line up against uh Deutsch's criterion for, you know, good scientific explanations? Uh, the criterion, you know, largely being reduced to, um, you know, a bad explanation is easy to vary. So if we if we think about what you were saying, like, it seems to me like this information um, theory of the individual is something that is, like, decently easy to vary. I mean, that's sort of like a strength of the theory, but it's also like a weakness, as you were saying. Right. Right. So it's like, if it is, uh, you know, if, if it's something that we can sort of like move forward with as a method for continuing scientific progress in biology and in, in, in other disciplines, you know, that sort of begs the question, if this thing is so broad and malleable and flexible, is it a useful uh, way of advancing knowledge? Because a corollary of Deutsch's um, criterion is that the search for hard to vary explanations is the origin of all progress, you know, implying that things that are easy to vary aren't actually going to um uh, propel scientific progress for that much, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely something to consider. Like specifically with like, if I'm like trying to counter this theory, like I could say something like, oh, a rock is something that preserves its own information over time. Is a rock an individual, huh? Yeah, like, yeah. I could, I could be really pedantic about it. Um, but you know, like a rock, there are like physical chemical forces that keep the rock together. You know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really vary and stuff like that. You know, information propagating through time. Is it an individual? Maybe, but like that's, I think definitely a valid critique in that this theory is so like malleable. But I think where I come down on personally is the fact that because these questions haven't really been answered and we've only been looking at it from an intuitive kind of like the individual as a pile or defined by spatial boundaries type of deal, the exercise is useful. That's where I come down on it. I come down on that idea a lot (laughs) when I read papers, but like the exercise in finding kind of the bounds is useful. Yeah, I largely agree. Ramstead, who was the one critiquing the ideas in this article, worked with this other guy, Friston, about a couple of interesting ideas related to this concept and nothing that like overturns this theory, but just something that you could work with in concert is basically the idea of the free energy principle. Um, But that was my only like real critique of this Quanta article as its own thing in that 
that section where it was talking about the free energy principle and Markov blankets was a little bit confusing. I had to go in and read Friston's paper on Markov blankets to like figure out what was happening. And I only got it in a in a general extent. But basically, the free energy principle states that, you know, biological systems try and minimize the surprise in the environment. Basically, is that biological systems will try and predict what is in the environment and minimize the difference between their prediction and the environment. That's like the free energy example. And this like relates to the idea of like, biological systems trying to maintain themselves, like maintain some type of like homeostatic mechanism and like trying to do that actively. Like a tornado doesn't really do that. It's just dependent on its environment. But then again, I would argue that early life on earth probably was more dependent on its environment, like a tornado than it is on its you know mm-hmm. own internal state. So like, you know, maybe it is useful to think about things even if they don't try and maintain themselves in a way. I don't know. And the idea of this Markov blanket is another thing that could be a requisite or some kind of facet of a biological entity, an individual, is that it's a formalization of this idea of set and complement in a sense that a Markov blanket is an entity, some formal thing that separates internal states and external states. And basically it is Parts of the Markov blanket are sensory in the sense that they take information from the external state and convey it to the internal state. Parts of the Markov blanket are active in that they are not dependent on the external state at all. They're only dependent on the internal state. So it's this like high level formalization of what we mean by a boundary. This way, the boundary doesn't have to be a physical membrane or something like that. It can be something more like theoretical, like something that separates sensory and active states. And it's also the Markov blanket. I think a hallmark of this paper was that the Markov blanket is something that is maintained by the individual in question. So that was like kind of a side a side research hole that I fell down. I was like, what is a Markov blanket? But that paper is very interesting. I will also link it in where I put the rest of my sources. If anyone is reading the Quanta article and a little bit confused on the free energy principle, it it would probably be useful to read that paper, even if it's a little bit more technical. No, assuming that they don't leave even more confused after reading the scientific article. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Because I I think Carl Friston's work, um, I think, is notoriously difficult to understand for some people. It was difficult for me, but I try I tried to get the main gist of it. Stepping back from the the scientific article and you know going back to kind of this overall idea of talking about individuality in biology. The question you could say is that like why does it all matter, you know? There's a quote in the Quanta article that says something like maybe cancer is better understood as a result of certain cells gaining a higher degree of individuality than their neighbors, which was a really interesting quote to me. But also it is very much like whenever you're in a biological setting and someone's like, why does this matter? The immediate jump is to like, how do we apply this to cancer? Because that is like something that's so important to study in biology. And, you know, if you can find a connection to cancer cells, you know, you can make this relevant to anything, no matter what it is. But I, I find that, that that quote is actually really important because like, when does the individuality of a collection of cells turn it into like a tumor cell and how a tumor is like, how separate is it an individual from the greater body? And like, if you had some kind of algorithm to determine the individuality of cells, if the cells reached a certain threshold, could you be able to tell that these are you know, a different individual. These are tumor cells and not like normal body cells like that. That's an interesting like 
direct application. That would be very hard to implement, but it's an interesting concept. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this earlier, but you know, one of my favorite things to think about is like life on other worlds and how this kind of applies there, right? Like I read a, a sci-fi novel a couple of years ago where one of the uh, one of the characters, question mark, one of the individuals in, in this sci-fi novel was this like vast solar system sized consciousness that was made up of a bunch of linked nodes and it had its own like directive and it was its own like weird entity the book is called up the walls of the worlds if if people are interested in sci-fi uh by who james tiptree let's see it's called up the walls of the world by james tiptree jr which i think is a pseudonym for a female author who uh, wrote as a man for most of her life but it's a really interesting novel but like the my point with bringing that up is that like there is no telling what types of entities exist on other worlds and you know, the example in the Quanta article is a sentient ocean of plasma that was described by Stanislaw Lem in Solaris. And that's, you know, another thing. I'm a huge fan of sci-fi. So like, you know, looking at examples in fiction is always something fun for me. But, you know, if we come across something weird in the universe, right? Like how do we how do we fit it into our own frameworks? Can we fit it into our own frameworks? You know, if because information is such a broad concept, if we find some like set of information on a distant planet in a distant galaxy and we look at this like landscape and we are able to somehow develop an algorithm that separates set from complement <laughs> and we are see this information persisting over time you know that can open up a lot of different doors for like what we consider life on other planets and i find that the most compelling part i mean you know the cancer direction is mm -hmm. definitely compelling but the the tie-in to life on other worlds and you know early earth life is probably my favorite yeah no i think that's very interesting or not, not even like not necessarily like other worlds but just like life outside of what we can experience like here on earth mm -hmm. um i'm in particular i'm here i'm thinking about another sci-fi example from uh, interstellar you know like this sort of like extra dimensional beings that we see in interstellar so um in the movie you know it doesn't really seem that they're spatially bound or even like really bound by time or anything like that so it would be sort of interesting to see like oh how like with these extra dimensional beings that are communicating in interstellar like are they um individuals themselves um you know can our current theories of individuality uh capture them or does something newer like this information theory of individual of individuality sorry um capture you know something like that uh more effectively um but yeah no the i think uh all these fiction examples that you're bringing up i think are you know really interesting to consider especially you know when you know as the u.s navy has reported we have been visited by ufos so <laughs> <laughs> you're right you're right do you think their information persists over time? <laughs> uh, you know, you know, yet to be seen, yet to be seen. Yet to be seen. No, I, I, I think, you know, as I'm a, I'm a huge fan of science fiction and I think I don't read enough science fiction for how much of a fan of it I am. But I think, you know, science fiction, we think of it as being influenced by science, of course. I think there's also the idea that science can be affected by science fiction in the sense that if you look at these like fictional examples you can kind of treat them as test cases or examples for your theory like yeah this these entities in interstellar how do they fit into the framework of the theory do they right. need to fit into the framework of the theory i think it makes theory stronger if we like expand our imaginations 
uh, expand our brains <laughs> and look at how how even fiction can affect our theories. I highly recommend Interstellar, by the way, if people have not watched it. I saw it so long ago, um, but I do remember I do remember those strange extra dimensional beings. Um, another reason why this is interesting to consider in the framework of like early life on Earth uh, is that there have been a couple of big transitions in biology in like the history of life. Like there was a history of no life to life, which we kind of talked about in the sense of these like weird distributed proto organisms that were highly dependent on the environment. There's also the transition between single cellular life and multicellular life and how kind of the individuality of single cells uh, who grew more and more dependent on each other and then turn into multicellular life, if that even is how multicellular life arose, like that I feel like is the general idea, but could be something else. But like how, you know, changes in individuality across the history of life, how we can kind of look at them from an information theoretic point of view. I think this is a theory that can bring up some interesting conversations in these like big transitions in life. Uh, and we talked about it a little even with like symbiotic entities, but like it is definitely something that applies there. To kind of wrap up this discussion and, you know, in the wrap up of the Quantum Magazine article as well, they brought out like a specific organism as like an example. I think it was called a rangemorph, which is a fern-shaped organism that, is it from the Ediacaran? Uh, it is from the Ediacaran. Right, right, right. And it's like a fern-shaped thing that is like six feet tall. It has multiple fronds. Most researchers thought it was like a colonial form of organism because it was similar to another organism called a sea pen, I think, which is an aggregate of individual polyps. But then they kind of proposed that it could not be like a set of uh, different polyps. It could be like its own type of organism. And the way I thought of it is that like if you think of like tree rings, you don't consider each ring of the tree a different like a different organism in a colony which is the tree right it's like all part of the tree's history and the what this new theory was is that you could consider like the growth of the fronds in a fractal like form as kind of like rings of a tree that document the organism's past and stuff and i think you know is a very specific example but i think it's illustrative of this whole idea because it's a blend of different types of individuality like it's organismal as it is like one entity that like persists over time it is environmental because i think the researchers noted that like each specific frond was like had like you know data in it from like the environment that it grew in kind of like you know ice cores or like Again, tree rings, like you can look at the rings in the trees and see what minerals were in the atmosphere. You can see the history of this organism. So it's like, it's a reflection of its environment. And then, you know, the fronds are also like, you know, related to each other in the way that you could consider them as a colony. So this is like a strange organism that like blends different forms of individuality. And I think it is a pretty good example of why this concept needed to be expanded in the first place, I think. Right, right. That's uh, that's very interesting. So, so to sort of like summarize, um, you know, this this range of morph, like basically, scientists previously thought it was sort of like a colonial organism, similar to say like like coral. Yeah. Oh, I used to know way more about coral than I know now. But <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Oh, so they're actually animals. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're animals. So, like, just just yeah, yeah, just for context. Um, 
like when you look at like a ranger morph, um, it basically like looks like a fern, right? Mm-hmm. We only know these these organisms through the fossil record, mm-hmm. right? So this this is not something that exists today. No. Um, for the listeners at home, but you know, if you were to like look at like a ranger morph fossil, like oh, you know, that's just an ancient fern. But what Akshana is talking about is that you know it's actually something much, much, much more complex than you know like a fern. Um, you know, first of all, because it's not a plant, right? But also because you know. Um, it can it potentially exists at these different levels or types of individuality. Right, right, right. And I think you know to wrap this up. Yeah, I noted how like biology, you know, needs more philosophical investigation, uh, like physics or chemistry and stuff. But I think again, where I land on this is that asking these questions is so useful, even if the answers are kind of murky. Um, even like making a big swing with a theory. It's super important, even if, you know, you miss in a way, even if there are these critiques. The thing I kind of thought of is that, like, I think asking these questions and trying to redefine previously intuitive definitions is actually quite useful and important, specifically in, like, fields like science. And I think it's good that in biology, there's a little bit more of a push to put it on more, like, philosophically firm ground. You know, the metaphor that I thought of is that when Einstein kind of redefined gravity as like curvature in space time and that was like such a big swing because like we thought we had an intuitive understanding of what gravity is um and you know most of our understandings of gravity that aren't einsteinian work in day-to-day life but you know he saw some problems and he saw a new definition that could really be useful and through that definition, it opened up new windows and avenues of questions. Like, I think it was in 2017, the Event Horizons Telescope had that image of the black hole, and it has like a ring of light around it. And, you know, how can you understand that without knowing Einstein's intuition that like giant gravitational fields cause light to bend because gravity curves space, right? You, and like when gravitational waves and things were discovered, all these things that follow from this new definition, new intuition of looking at gravity, you know, obviously like GR is like such a pristine theory and you can't really compare any theory to that one. But my point in that comparison is that redefining old definitions in a new way and trying to like exercise the bounds of those definitions and try and figure out when they're useful and when they're not is always a really useful exercise in any field of science so i think this was a really fun and interesting article to look at yeah no absolutely uh this is a very interesting topic and uh thank you all for joining us on the expanding brain podcast yes thank you indeed i hope you know your concept of the individual has been expanded a little <laughs> absolutely you know and just like how you should all individually uh like and subscribe below <laughs> thank you yes uh, we haven't started plugging but let's start it now absolutely <laughs> the description has links to our twitter and also my blog and, and links to our sources so everything you will find is there <laughs> <laughs>